Well, it's good to see you again this morning. Uh, my name is Ron Dillon. If we haven't met, then uh, maybe we'll have a chance to meet sometime later today. And uh, this morning, I want to bring a message that is sort of like a continuation of the message I had last week. And the message last week was about three pr practices that will help you be successful as a Christian. And today, I want to talk about three more practices that will help you be successful as a Christian. And today, we don't have a single text, but we have three different texts, one each for the three different parts of the Christian life or practices of the Christian life uh, that will help you to become successful as a believer. Now, before I get into the scriptures, let me ask you this question. What kind of a Christian life do you want? I mean, just exactly what do you want to get out of Christianity? Now, let's be honest. There are some people, I think, who just want a ticket to heaven. That, that's all they want. They want to know when they die they're going to go to heaven instead of hell. And so they have some uh, practice of Christianity. I don't know if that's really a practice of Christianity. Maybe some kind of profession of Christianity. Uh, you know, in our churches, in Baptist churches, and I grew up in the Baptist church, uh, you know, we talk about people coming forward to receive Christ, and uh, we talk about baptism as a part of that process of becoming a church member and joining the church. And I'm afraid that people, some at least, I've met some of them, uh, thought that all you had to do to become a Christian and to go to heaven when you die is just walk down the aisle to the end of the service, shake the preacher's hand, say a prayer, uh, get baptized, your name's on the roll, and when you die, you're going to heaven, and that's all there is to the Christian life. Well, unfortunately, there are many people who seem to believe that because that's all they have. In other words, they walked the aisle, they shook the preacher's hand, they got baptized, they got on the church roll, and they don't have any other Christianity than that. But I hope you know, I mean, anybody that come to church at 8.30 on Sunday morning ought to know this, right? Do like this if you agree. You ought to realize that Real Christianity is not just making a profession of faith and joining a church. Real Christianity is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, right? you agree with that? Real Christianity means that Christ comes to live in you, that you have a spiritual transformation. We call it the new birth, being saved, being converted. And that newness means Christ has come to live in you, and he desires to guide and direct your life from that day forward. And the successful Christian life is one that is full of peace and joy and contentment. It is not a trouble-free life because the enemy, Satan, will try to get us off track. He can't steal your salvation, but he can make you miserable on the way to heaven if you allow him to do so. And so the things that I want to share with you are not just some academic things that I learned in a book or things that I got at the seminary, but these are some things that I've learned through my own Christian experience as a pastor and as a believer that can help a person to be successful in their Christian experience and have the kind of joy that God wants us to have as Christians. And if you practice these things you will find that success. You will find that peace, that joy. Again, it will not make you trouble-free. It will not mean that Satan no longer bothers you with temptations. But it will show you how to overcome that and how to have great victory and great joy. Now, last time we talked about three things. Number one, we talked about having an open communication with God. And that has to do with prayer and scripture reading. The second thing we talked about was keeping short accounts with God. That is, when you sin as a Christian... 
confess it to God quickly and do whatever you need to do about it. If it means to, to make amends, if it means to make apologies, if it means to repay something you stole. And the third thing was learning to walk by faith. And that basically means to learn to walk in obedience to whatever God says. So here are the next three. And I believe I've put these in the order that I would say are important. Okay. First importance, communication with God. Second importance is keeping short accounts with God. Third importance would be to walk by faith. And here is the fourth one of importance, and you'll find these on the back of your bulletin. And it is learning how to serve God in your daily life. Now here's the scripture. It's from Romans 6, 13. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin, Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Amen. That's God's word. Pray with me, if you will. Our Father, we are thankful to you for this time to come and worship. Lord, thank you for this church and uh, the years that have gone by where men and women have given themselves to have this building and given themselves to teach and to lead and to worship. And now, Lord, we have this, this wonderful opportunity. And make this Sunday a great day for this church, for your church, the kingdom of God. May it increase and may it grow in us today. We pray this, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, here's the truth about serving. Every one of us who are Christians, every one of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, God has prepared good works for us to do day by day. God has already prepared things for you to do day by day. So where do you get that? Well, let me give you a scripture on that. Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10. Now, you remember what it says in Ephesians 2.8 and 9, "...for by grace you are saved through faith." And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The next verse says, For God created us to do good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do. Isn't that amazing? Now, we're not really going to be talking too much today about spiritual gifts, but guess what? Every Christian has been given spiritual gifts, and a spiritual gift is simply a capacity an ability to serve God in some specific way. Your service may be in the church on Sunday. And you know, I'm grateful for those who serve on Sunday. I mean, think about the people who open the building. Think about the people who greet and those who come and perform uh, music for us. They sing and lead us in worship. Uh, think about those who teach the Sunday school classes. What a great blessing Sunday school is in any church that has a Sunday school. What a wonderful tool God has given us. But think about those people who taught you in Sunday school. And those who work in the nursery, all these are ways of serving. But it goes beyond just Sunday. What does God want you to do in terms of your Christian service? There are some who are called to full-time Christian ministry, and certainly that's service. But not everybody's going to be called to be a preacher or a minister of music or youth or education or whatever else we have in the church. And so let me give you three questions that you can ask that I hope will help you understand what it means to serve God as a part of your Christian experience. Number one, the first question is, what needs to be done? You know, when you look around a church building and you come to a worship service like this or you go on to a Sunday school class, you might see something 
or hear about something that needs to be done. Now, I don't know how it is here at Highland Park these days, but I know at First Baptist in Mount Pleasant, where I've spent most of the last 19 years, we seem to always need somebody to work in the nursery. We, we seem to always need helpers with the children. We always seem to need extra help with our youth ministry on Wednesday night. I mean, we have a ton of youth that come in on Wednesday night that don't come to Sunday school, and Wednesday night's the only chance many of them get to hear the gospel. And we've had trouble finding enough men and women to help supervise the, the number of kids that we have coming on Sunday night. You know, if you look around this church and you see something that needs to be done, guess what? You just might be the person to do it. And there are so many things that do not need an expertise. There are many things that do not need uh, training. And so if there's something you see that needs to be done, don't wait on somebody to be hired to do it. Do it yourself as a way of serving God. You know, if you see a piece of paper on the ground around the church, pick it up. Don't say, oh man, that custodian, boy, he sure missed it this week, and walk on by complaining. No, no, reach down and pick it up and put it where it needs to go. So first of all, ask this question, what needs to be done? And when you look around and see what needs to be done, you recognize, well, I'm busy, I can't do everything. No, you can't, but you can do something. Find something that needs to be done. Second question, what is it in our church that would make things better? You know, one of my favorite jokes, I guess, it's sort of an inside joke about being a pastor or a member of church staff is, there are people who will come to me at times and say, Pastor, you know what we need in this church? And they'll start telling me what they think needs to be done to make our church a better church. Now, honestly, sometimes I have great ideas. There was a fellow who came to me some years ago over in Mount Pleasant. He said, Pastor, what we need to do is we need to plant some flowers and uh, some bushes along this walkway out in front of our church and probably need to have a couple of benches out there so people might want to sit and rest a minute, especially some of our elderly members. I thought, man, that's a great idea. But he was an old guy, and he couldn't do it himself. And eventually we were able to get that done through some volunteers as well as some, some paid staff. But a lot of people have these great ideas of what needs to be done, but they don't want to do it. They want to put it off on somebody else. And we had a lady up in Georgetown where I served for a while, and, and she had a little different tack on it. She would come to me periodically and say, Pastor, uh, my husband and I have this, uh, this lump sum of money, and we'd like to give it to you to designate where it needs to go in the church. Now, these people had an unusually large income, and they had businesses, and sometimes they'd have a wad of cash, and it might be forty dollars or $50,000. Now, that's the way to get things done. <laughs> You, you, want, you have a wad of cash, take it to your pastor and tell him you want, he want, uh, you want him to use it for something good in the church. But most of us can't do that. When you think about something that needs to be done in the church, maybe you're the person to start doing it. You say, my church, we need to have a ministry to X. I mean, who, who is X? Maybe it's children or youth or maybe it's senior adults. Our, our church needs to have an outreach evangelistic ministry. Maybe you're the person to get it started. And then ask yourself this question, what should I do? What are your opportunities? What are your abilities? What are your uh, capabilities? You know, there are some people who like to do things that they're not capable of doing. We had a fellow in the church I grew up in, up in West Virginia. His name was Fred, and Fred loved to sing. He sang in the choir, and every now and then he had almost uh, begged to, to sing a solo. The only problem was Fred couldn't sing. I mean, he's about the awfulest singer I ever heard in church in my life. But you knew his heart was in it. And I grew up thinking to myself, why do they let him do that? 
you know, why do they, and, and I still don't know exactly why, but here's the deal, if you can't sing, don't volunteer to be a soloist. Now, if you can't sing, you can sing in the choir, you know, there, there'll be enough places where people can overpower you, or they can point to microphones in different directions. So what can you do, and what should you do? And probably, if you have a heart that says, God, I want to be successful in my Christian experience, so how can I serve you in my church, or maybe it's on Mondays or throughout the week, maybe I can serve you by serving my neighbor? Do you ever think about that? Think about the story of the Good Samaritan. There was a man, and, and, and he decided to help this hurt fellow that he didn't even know. God has a place, God has a way, God has a means for you to serve him if you say to him each day, God, how can I serve you today? What is it that you want me to do today? You'll discover through serving the joy that cannot come from your job. Now, sometimes serving may be involved with your job. Sometimes serving may be a part of what you do professionally. But make sure that you're doing it for the Lord and not just for a paycheck. So number four in principles, practices for successful Christian living is serving. Now, here's number five, and this is a big one. It's sharing Jesus, and this is the work of evangelism. This is the work of helping people come to know Jesus Christ. So here's the scripture, 1 Peter 3, middle of the verse, 15b, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Now, here's the question. What would you do if someone came up to you and said, can you, ask, can you tell me how to be a Christian? What would you say to that person? I know what some people would say. Uh, Let me take you to my pastor. <laughs> hey, if that's the best you can do, do it. Okay, but what about you telling that person how to become a Christian? Can you do it? What would you say to them? You say, well, uh, come Sunday morning at 8.30 or 11, and uh, after the sermon, the preacher's going to ask people who want to receive Jesus to come to the front of the church. That's what you do. You go up there, and he'll take it from there. I mean, you could do worse, right? But let me give you two ways, two methods that you, as a believer, without seminary training, without going through a study course, without having any special pastors, hands-on training, you can help a person come to know Jesus Christ. And the first one is, you have a testimony. You have a testimony. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, preacher. I don't have a testimony. We think of people who have testimonies that are famous. Uh, some years ago when I was pastor at this church, we had a, a guy came in who was a decorated war hero from the Vietnam War. And uh, he was all shot up and they put his body in a pile of dead bodies, thinking he was dead, but he really wasn't dead. And they somehow somebody saw blood spurting out of one of his wounds, and they got his body out of that pile and began to treat him, and he survived. His name is Cleve McClary. Anybody remember Cleve McClary? Yeah, somebody remember Cleve. And then later, when I served up in Georgetown, he, he lived just down the road from where we were, and so we'd have him come in from time to time and share his testimony. And I mean, he has a great testimony. I mean, that was a, it's a thrilling testimony of how God saved him and how he has given his life to sharing the gospel. But listen, there's only one Cleve McClary, and, and you can't be him, and I can't either. So 
What do you mean share your testimony? Let me give you four things that your testimony should include. And, and you don't, it'd be good to write these down maybe, but, but you don't have to practice these things because they're your story. Number one is, what was your life like before you became a Christian? I mean, I can tell you really quickly, my life was pretty ordinary for a seven-year-old boy growing up in the, in the southern part of West Virginia with two sisters. Later we had a brother, but for a long time it was just the three of us. I mean, I went to church on Sundays, I played baseball, went to a swimming pool as often as I could, and at the age of seven, you know, I hadn't gotten into too much trouble, hadn't robbed any banks yet at that age. Second point is, how did you realize your need for Christ? What made you think that you needed Jesus in your life? Well, at church, I heard the pastor talk about people who died without Christ going to hell. That's how I realized I needed Jesus. I thought if I died, I'd go to hell. Thirdly, how did you actually come to Christ? Well, for me, it was going down the aisle at the end of a service on a Sunday night. And I went forward and said to the pastor, I need to be saved. I don't know exactly what I said, but something like that. And he saw what I needed, so we knelt right here at this right front bench. It wasn't this one, but it was one just about like it. And we knelt, and I prayed and asked Christ to come into my heart and forgive my sins. And when I stood up, I was a new person at the age of seven. You don't have to be that young. You can be as old as you are. And then number four, what is your life like now that Christ has come in? I cannot explain to you how great God has been in my life, how many times he's forgiven me of sins, how many times he's helped me in tough places, how many joys and pleasures and blessings he's given to me since I trusted him all those years ago. Now, if you can say those four things about your life, you've got a testimony. And you might say to somebody, hey, let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you what happened in my experience. Let me tell you how Christ came into my life. And in 90 seconds or two minutes or three minutes, you can tell that little story of your own testimony. You don't have to be a, a notorious wayward sinner to have a testimony. You have a testimony if Christ lives in you. Now, if Christ doesn't live in you, then you need to be saved and trust in Christ. Here's the second thing you can do. You can learn to share the gospel and make a gospel presentation. Make a gospel presentation. Now, I want to practice this with you as well this morning. Uh, in fact, let's, let's start it off by reciting uh, the world's most famous scripture verse. Anybody know what that is? What is it? No, no, that's not the world's most famous verse. It's the one you see on signs at these ball games. John 3.16. Anybody know that verse? Anybody? Let's recite it together, all right? Can you recite it with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know that verse, right? If you know that verse, you can make a gospel presentation. Let me show you how. It says, God loved the world, and you know what? He loves you. I don't understand why God loves me. I don't know how he does it. But the Bible says God loves me, and God loves you, and God loves every person in this world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In other words, God was willing to send his son to die a cruel, harsh death so that he could become the sacrifice for our sins and that our sins can be forgiven. You know that, don't you? 
That's what it means. He gave his only begotten son. He sent Jesus. He gave him to us so that Jesus might die for our sins when he died on the cross. And then the third thing is so that whoever, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to be your Savior, to be your Lord, if you say to him, Lord Jesus, come into my life and take over, you will be saved. Now, you don't have to prove that. You're just telling people what the Bible says. See, that's what a witness is. A witness doesn't have to prove anything. A witness simply says, here's my experience. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what the truth of God's Word says. You can take it or leave it. It's not my, it's not my obligation to make you believe. My obligation is just simply present to you the message. And so if a person is willing to say John 3.16 and then do three things, God loves you, Jesus died for you, when you receive him by believing, trusting in him, you'll be saved and you'll go to heaven forever. Can you do that? Sure you can. The problem is not knowing what to do, is it? The problem is getting the courage to do it. So here's the third thing about sharing the gospel. Just start a conversation. Just start a conversation. Just start a conversation. You know, it's so easy for people not to say anything. A few days ago, I was at a car dealership getting my car serviced, and uh, they had this big waiting room. And there must have been 20 or 25 people in that waiting room, waiting on their cars to be serviced. And uh, I, I saw several empty seats, and just so happens a friend of mine, a longtime friend of mine, was sitting there getting his car service. So I sat next to him and we started chatting. And I tell you what, the whole time I was there, nearly, uh, we chatted about something. His car got finished, so he went off and it wasn't too long before mine was finished. But I thought to myself, why didn't I sit down beside somebody that I didn't know? (laughs) I should have, shouldn't I? I was in another situation like that one day. It was up here at the, uh, the Hyundai place. I used to have a Hyundai, so I went in to have the car serviced. And there was this guy who walked in the waiting room who had a turban on his head. Have you ever seen those guys that wear the turbans? Usually the Indian who is a Sikh, that's a religious group, S-I-K-H, wears the turban, the men. And under that turban is their hair. They don't cut their hair. And so they cover their hair with the turban. So he came in and had a seat. And I thought, now I've been to India several times on mission trips, and I know about the Sikh religion a little bit. And so I thought, I need to start a conversation with this guy. And so I did. I said to him, I said, you know, looks to me like you're from India. Is that right? He said, oh, yeah, I'm from India. I said, I could, I could tell by the turban. I said, you're, you're a Sikh, aren't you? He said, yes, I'm a Sikh. And so we got to talking about religion. And before I know it, there was another person who came in the room who heard us talking, and he joined our conversation. He was an American guy, and uh, he had been to Afghanistan. And uh, while he was in Afghanistan, he had converted to Islam. So here's a Baptist preacher, a Sikh from India, and an American who had been to Afghanistan who was a Muslim. And all three of us were talking about religion. And one of them said the classic statement. If you've heard this, if you've heard about it, he said, you know the way I see it is uh, all of us are trying to reach the same place. We're all trying to get to heaven. We're all trying to get to God. And all of us are climbing up the same mountain to get to God, except we're using different roads to get there. Now, I could have done a classic apologetic on him and said, you know, the Bible says there's only one way to God. 
But instead I said this, and it was just a bit of inspiration, all I can say is I said, well, you know, that's what the world looks to like. We're all trying to get to God. We're all trying to work our way. We're all trying to follow the rules of our religion so we can get there eventually. But here's, here's what Christianity says. Christianity says you can't climb the mountain to get to God, but God came off the mountain down to us. And that's when Jesus was born as a baby in Bethlehem. And I started talking about the gospel, and they both decided they didn't want to talk anymore. But at least we had a conversation. Now, you may never know where a conversation will lead. You may be able to say to this guy, you know, what's the most exciting thing that ever happened in your life? And he or she may think about it a minute, and they may tell you something, and then eventually they'll say, what about you? What's the most exciting thing that ever happened in your life? You say, well, you know, most exciting thing that ever happened to me was the day I received Jesus as my Savior. And you can tell your testimony. Now, folks, it is not the job of the pastors of the church, the staff of the church, to do the evangelism. Not all of it. It is our job to evangelize like it's every Christian's job to evangelize. And unless people in the pew take their responsibility seriously to spread the word of God, it won't get very far. The most dynamic witness about the power of Christ that can be given is when you live for Christ daily and people see the reality of Christ in you. Not your perfection, but the reality of Christ living in you. So if you want to be successful in the Christian life, each day think about who can I share the gospel with today? Just to ask God, show me, Lord, bring somebody my way that I can talk to about you and just tell them what I've experienced in you. And you'll be surprised how God answers that prayer. So, number one today, or at least number four in the whole scheme of things, is serving. The next thing is sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's the last thing. And you know I'm a Baptist preacher. I'd get to this eventually. It is stewardship. Yeah, stewardship. Now, I don't say this because the church needs money. I say this because you need to learn the practice of being a steward with everything you possess. Here's the scripture. 1 Corinthians 9, 16, and 17, from the Holman Christian Standard Bible. For if I preach the gospel, I have no reason to boast, because an obligation is placed on me. And woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward, but if unwillingly, I am entrusted with a stewardship. Now, what's this all about? I chose this passage because it has the word stewardship in it. And the idea Paul says here is that I have been called to preach the gospel, and I have to do it. Whether I want to or not, that's what God has told me to do. I am obligated to preach the gospel. And if I do it willingly, that's wonderful because I get a reward for that. But if I don't do it willingly, I still have to do it because I have a stewardship. Now, let me give you an example. When I was a boy, there was a man across the street from us who didn't have any children. He and his wife, they both worked, and they traveled from time to time. And one day, he called me over, and he said, Ronnie, i got a job for you. I said, okay, how can I help you? He said, well, uh, my wife and I, we're going on this little trip. We're going to be gone for however many days it was. And he says, I want to leave you a key to my house, and I want you to come over and check on it every day or two or three. You know, just walk through the house, make sure everything's okay. I don't want the, the plumbing in the bathroom to break and flood the house or I don't want somebody coming in here messing around, so, you know, just check it for me. And I thought, man, this is fantastic. He's trusting me with the key to his house. And so I said, okay, and he left, and so every day I went over to his house. I unlocked the door, went in, looked around, and, you know, kind of nosy, snooping around everything. And 
After he was gone for a few days, he came back and he called me over and I went over and gave him the key and he gave me some money. Now, it was a job, right? It was a privilege, right? I made some money, yeah, but it was a stewardship. In essence, he was saying to me, while I'm gone, will you take care of my house? Now, I'd have really felt bad if something happened and a fire started and a house burned down. But I was just across the street. I could at least have called the fire department. I was in charge, so to speak, of that house. I had a stewardship. He was away, and he gave me charge to keep up with his house. Now, Jesus Christ went back to heaven, and he has given us responsibility for three things. Three things, each of us personally. Number one, time. Number two, talent, our abilities. And number three, our money, our tithe. Time, talent, and tithe. Let me spend just a moment explaining what I mean by each of those three things. As a Christian, you have been given time in this world. And here's the key. Every one of us have exactly the same amount of time. you believe that? How much time are you going to have today? 24 hours. How much time am I going to have today? 24 hours. All of us have 24 hours a day. And so every one of us seeks to find time to do what we should do, but we will never find time. You have to make time. Now, you really can't make time, but what that means is you have to schedule the things that are most important to you and leave some other things undone. Now, here's the dilemma we find ourselves in. Oftentimes, we schedule the things we enjoy first, the things that we like to do, the things that we have fun doing. We want to do those first, and then we'll put off to last those things we don't enjoy, and usually we don't get to those things. An example would be what I talked about last week, and the first thing about spending time with God is our prayer time and Bible reading time. A lot of people don't schedule that time first, and so they wait till last. And I remember as, as a teenager, preteen, I guess, trying to be a good Christian, I said, I got to read my Bible every day. I got to pray every day. So I said, I'm going to do it just before I go to bed. I can't tell you how many times I fell asleep reading the Bible. And I didn't get very far. <laughs> the time I went to bed, I was sleepy. That's not a good time for me. Maybe it is for you, but it isn't for me. And so you have to find time to do what God would have you to do with your time. Talent. Everybody can do something. We already talked about serving. But God has given you special ability to serve through spiritual gifts. Every Christian is spiritually gifted. Do you know what your spiritual gift is? Anybody? Do a little nod or something? Yeah. We see, what I find often in the church is a lot of people say, well, Pastor, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. You know what I say to them? Shame on you. Yeah, shame on you. You don't have to call out what it is necessarily, but you have to know that God has enabled you, spiritually enabled you to do some things. We call these spiritual gifts. There are three basic passages in the New Testament that talk about this. And in those three passages, the listing of about 18 or 19 different spiritual gifts, every Christian has at least one of those, probably two or three of those gifts. I find that most of us have a leading gift, and then we have two or three other gifts that are you know, kind of assistant gifts along the way. And so you have the opportunity to live for Christ using your talent for his glory. 
This is stewardship. You have been left here to do a job, to serve God in a certain way, and nothing can take the place of that. And then let's look at stewardship of our finances. Three truths about finances. And oftentimes I'll preach a series of messages on stewardship, and I'm not sure if I did this when I was at Highland Park years ago, but I would say, you know, I'm going to be preaching the next four weeks on money, and if that offends you, you have my permission not to be here. If you're offended by a preacher talking about money, you can go someplace else to church for the next four weeks, and you can come back later when I'm not talking about money. People think that's cute, and what it does is it piques their interest. What's he going to say about money that might be offensive? I want to go hear that. But here are three truths. Number one, all we have is owned by God. I think most people would agree with that. Would you agree with that? Everything I have is really owned by God. He gave it to me. He gave me the ability to work a job and to be able to earn money so I can have these things. And the ultimate test is, when you have a funeral service, did you ever see a hearse go out of the church parking lot to a funeral to, to bury somebody's body and have a U-Haul trailer attached behind it? I've never seen that. It might have happened, but I've never, why is that? We know you can't take it with you, right? I've heard of people who've been buried in, in their cars. There was one man that had a gold Cadillac. It wasn't real gold. It was painted gold. He loved that car so much. He left money and made provisions that when he died, they would dig this big hole and put his car in it and put his body in that car and then bury the car. And him, well, that's kind of weird, isn't it? But there are a lot of weird people in this world who think they own their stuff. And you see, because God owns your stuff, you can't do with it just anything you please. It's God's. What does God please for you to do with your stuff? What does God please for you to do with your money, His money? What does God please for you to do with your possessions, your house, your cars, your bank account? What, what does God say about these things, you see? And real stewardship for a Christian means I know that God owns everything. He gave me what I have. He can take it away at his will and at a moment's notice or without any notice. God owns it all. Here's the second point of stewardship. We are only stewards of our possessions and opportunities. That is, we're managers. We have a, a responsibility. And I'm convinced that one day... When we die, when Christians die, we will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And this judgment seat of Christ is not going to be a judgment as to who goes to heaven or who goes to hell. You see, that's been decided. If you're a Christian, that's been decided long ago. You're already in heaven. But we stand before the judgment seat of Christ to be judged for how we've used our possessions, our time, our talents, our opportunities... And those who have faithfully served will receive rewards, and those who have not used their rewards, their, their blessings faithfully, will not receive a reward, but they'll be saved. The Bible says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. They will be saved, yet so as by fire. That's what the Bible says. And so if you want to be successful in the Christian life, you need to learn that God owns your stuff. You need to learn that you're just a manager. You need to learn that it's not yours just to do as you want to do, that you need to keep working with God and trusting God and following God and be in communication with God and let God direct you in all of your ways in terms of your stuff. Now, here's the last one, the last principle. Tithing is a principle of good stewardship. Now, let me say it clearly, and you probably know this. Tithing means giving 
of your income to God. A friend named Jerry called me one day. Jerry's business had just been uh, bankrupt due to circumstances beyond his control, of course. They had just foreclosed on his house and sold it at auction on the courthouse steps. And he called, and I thought maybe he was asking for help, and I was prepared to help him any way I could. But he said, Ron, Karen, and I have a question. I said, okay, what's the question? He said, well, how much should we tithe on our savings account? (laughs) There was a guy who just lost his business. His house had just been auctioned out from under him, and he wanted to know about tithing his savings account. So I asked him a couple of questions. I said, well, Jerry, let me ask you this. When you earned the money that you put some of it in savings, did you give a tithe on that money? He said, oh, yeah, we always have been tithers since they first married. He said, so I, I tithe on all my pay, and, and then we take some of the money and put it in the bank, and that's our savings. I said, well, listen, you cannot give a tithe on a savings account except on the interest because tithing is on the increase Back in the days of the Old Testament, when a Jewish man had flocks and herds of animals, every year his flocks and herds would produce more and more youngsters, you know, the little lambs and the little calves and little camels and donkeys. And so the tithe was 10% of the increase. If you increase by 100 head of cattle, 10 of them belong to God as a tithe. And so the principle of tithing means that you know that God owns everything, And God has given you this increase, and to show God that you know that he owns all of it, we give to him 10% of the increase. Now, people say, where do you give that? Well, I believe that it should be given to the storehouse, the place where you normally receive your spiritual food, your spiritual fellowship, your local church. Now, I know what people say. I've been a pastor long enough to know the arguments. The arguments are, Pastor, I cannot afford to tithe. Well, let me put it to you this way. Can you afford not to tithe? I've discovered, like a lot of people I know, that 90% with God goes further than 100% with me, just me doing the accounting. 90% will go further in paying your bills and buying the stuff you need and saving for a rainy day than 100% goes with you as the chief manager and strategist. In fact, over the last several years, I've been giving a tithing challenge. Every time I preach on stewardship, and especially a series, I'd say, now here's the tithing challenge. If you will give 10% of your income faithfully to the Lord through this church over the next six months. And at the end of that six months, you come to me and say, Pastor, it hasn't worked. It just has not worked. Then I will go to our church treasurer and I will honestly say, we will give back to you every cent that you tithe for these six months and you won't be out anything. But if you go six months without knowing the blessing of God, I'll be surprised. And over the years, I've had several people who've tried it and came back to me and said, you know what? It works. I will never go back to being a giver of only offerings and not a tither because I know tithing blesses me. You see, it's not a law that God requires it. It's not a law that the church requires it, but it's a principle. 
and the principle is valid. When Libby and I first married, by the way, this past week we celebrated our 50th wedding anniversary. How about that? That's pretty good, huh? We were only, I was only 10 or 11 when we got married, so don't, you know, don't see me as an old guy these days. But, but we both were Christians. We both knew God had called us to ministry, and tithing was not an issue. It never has been an issue. And as we've received increases in our paycheck or we've received some unexpected cash for some reason or another, we've always given at least 10%. And I can testify through 50 years of marriage, God has never let us go hungry. Oh, we've not always had everything we wanted, but let me tell you, God has abundantly supplied above and beyond what we needed and joyfully and joyously. So you want to be a successful Christian, you can't do it without being a good steward. And if you learn the practice of tithing, you'll never regret it. You'll never put it last. You'll always put it first. First check you write, the first statement on your income and your budget is giving to God the tithe. And then if God impresses you with, to give more as an offering, then you do that. We always give extra to the offerings in our church, whether it's a building fund offering or Lottie Moon or Annie Armstrong or any kind of missions or, or missionary offering. God has blessed us in that way. Now, let me ask the last question today. How's your Christian life going to this point? Could you point to people who aren't Christians and say to them, look at my life and, and see how blessed I've been and, and see what kind of life I live. You need to have that too. Can you say that? I don't know if any of us could say that. But we ought to be able to say, you know what? I know I'm a Christian. I want to be a good Christian. I want to be a successful Christian. And if these are some things that I can do to make Christianity more successful, I want to do it. Are you at that place where you can say, God, I really want to find success in the Christian life. I don't want to just endure my Christianity. I want to enjoy my Christianity. Just bow with me for a moment, if you will. Jeremy's going to come and, and play softly for a moment. I'm going to ask you to do something this morning that... Uh, I hope you're ready to do if God's put it on your heart. It may be that as a believer this morning, a Christian, you know there's some things in your life that are not right with God. Maybe there's some things you're doing that you know God wouldn't have you to do. There might be some things that God is telling you, this is something you need to put in your life. Maybe you need to be more consistent in giving a witness. Maybe you need to find a place to serve in the church, in, in the job, in the neighborhood, in the family. And so here's what I want to ask you to do. While Jeremy plays for just a moment, if you want to make that commitment to God that you're going to start doing this or you're going to stop doing that, will you just stand up wherever you are? You don't have to come to the front of the church. Just stand up wherever you are and talk to God about it. Make your commitment to Him right there where you are. And then when you're finished praying, making that commitment, then just sit back down. Right now, just stand up. Tell God what it is. Just stand. What's God saying? What's he impressing on your heart? Just stand up, if you will. Father, I thank you for your word that encourages us, that instructs us and helps us. 
I thank you this morning that you've spoken to people here in this service, those who've stood, those who've prayed and sincerely made commitments to you. Lord, we pray that you will enable each person to know your strength and your presence in keeping these commitments day by day. And Lord, that you'll just guide them in their walk and, and just let them know you're with them step by step. And that you'll bless them and help them as they endeavor to be successful in the Christian life. And Father, we pray now for your continued guidance in this service and through this day. We pray this, we ask it in Jesus' name.